Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest served for nine years in the British Army as an infantry officer in the Welsh Guards. He ended his career as a staff officer to His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. Since leaving the Army, he has held a variety of commercial roles, including running his own project management business. He was the first employee of Walking with the Wounded, a British charity that helps injured former British servicemen and servicewomen. And in 2020, he became the organization's leader. We are pleased to welcome CEO of Walking with the Wounded, Fergus Williams. Fergus, welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Great to have you with me today. Joe, thank you very much for inviting me. So, Fergus, we've gotten to know each other a little bit, and certainly Walking with the Wounded is a very important charity in the UK. You do phenomenal work for service people in the areas of mental health and employment, and also just kind of community involvement and that type of thing. You were the first employee with Walking with the Wounded. I know that you took over after the CEO retired and handed the reins over to you. Tell us about what led you to this organization, led you to be the first employee, and what were some of the important things and milestones in your life that really tell us about you? Actually, my life has been defined by service. So I joined the Army in 1990 after leaving school. And I went to Sandhurst, did that, and served nine years with the infantry. And that was a fascinating leadership development in itself. But more importantly, it sort of encompasses who I am, you know, a decent chunk of change of your life spent in service. And Sandhurst operate and teach future leaders the resilience and the empathy to be able to have the honor to lead men and ultimately lead men in really quite challenging situations, but you grow as a person. And there are two aspects in that. One is the motto that we use, serve to lead. And it's about service as a privilege to leadership. And the second one, I guess, is mission command. Mission command is a very military orientated leadership element, but it really says you could do it however you want and you can fail. And failure is fine and good as long as you don't fail doing the same thing twice. What I love about the military is that connection with your soldiers. It's a real honor and a privilege to serve and to lead soldiers. And for me, that has been the defining thing in, through my life. I left actually because I wanted to get married and I didn't feel service life for the wife and I wanted to go and do other things. So I left in 1998 after a very fulfilling eight, nine years and went on to sort of other commercial roles. So I come from a military family, but I'd never really considered the military terribly hard. And I suddenly woke up at Sandhurst, and that's the military training academy for officers. And I was going, how did I get here? And did I actually make any decisions myself about getting here? And actually, really what I understood is I'd just been nudged and influenced and wouldn't it be a good idea by my parents and suddenly woke up at Sandhurst going, oh, Actually, have I made a decision myself of being here? And I was really enjoying it, and I was quite good, and I felt I'd landed on my feet, but I needed to make a decision. 
And my father was in a regiment called the Grenadier Guards. So I thought I needed to make a decision. And the first decision I made was not to join the Grenadier Guards, just to define this is about me. This is not about family or my father. So I joined a similar regiment, the Welsh Guards. And that was probably <laughs> quite sadly, age 20, you know, my first adult decision. Go, no, 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 no. No longer am I sort of being led by my parents. It's a defining moment for me. And I said, no, I'm not going to join your regiment. I'm going to join my own. It's really important to be able to take ownership of your own decisions that's an important thing for everybody going through life is to ensure that these are your decisions and being clear that you can take ownership of them and the consequences of them afterwards. Those consequences sometimes are good and sometimes they're bad, but you need to take ownership of them. And it was a very easy decision to make because, you know, the Welsh Guards was a great place to go and join. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Owning your own decisions, I think, is a really important element. It's a great point because, it, especially, there's often when we're young, pressure on us, you know, pressure from our family or our friends or our society or whatever to go in a certain direction. We're accountable. We've got to make those decisions. We've got to live with the decisions. It's just, it's when we can be intentional ourselves. I think that's when we really, we talk about taking command and having freedom and kind of that autonomy. And so much of that comes with even those decisions, like the ones you made. Sure. And I've got some teenage children and we're at that balance now where I am trying to influence them, but ultimately I want to give them their responsibility to make choices for themselves. It's a difficult balance at what stage, 16, 18, 20, when is the right moment to go, no, 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 this is your call. And it is absolutely a development point for them. So you left the service. And what did you do after that? I So then I went and joined a firm called Zepta. It's a direct sales company. And it was my first step into commercial activities. It was a role developing networks of salespeople across Europe. And it was fascinating because I immediately went out and I was in Europe and I was talking to different networks of people trying to sell our products and how to do it better. It was very much sales orientated, but as a almost a sales trainer, really. But what did I know about sales? Not a great deal. So there was a huge learning curve about how to inspire people and take people on a journey and understand how to build value in a proposition. And so I did that for two or three years until I understood that actually there probably wasn't room for me to grow. And I needed to grow as an individual. I wanted to grow as an individual. And so I went back to school, did an MBA. And ultimately, I started my own business because that's where I felt that I could have most effect on my life. And actually, it's important to remember, having come out of nine years in the military, that transition from military lifestyle to the civilian lifestyle, it's not always easy. And I have to say, I floated around for two or three years, underwhelmed by what I was seeing on the outside. And I didn't regret leaving, but I was going, no, I'm more than this. And I'm constrained by the roles and the opportunities that I was seeing. And there was the education piece because I didn't go to university and I felt that I'd missed out. Very many employers were going and university. And I had to then start to make excuses of why I didn't go to university. So I went back and did an MBA for my own self-improvement. It was absolutely to demonstrate to myself that I was capable and I had something to offer. 
I mean, was there an insecurity? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. You know, you front up to your interviews and they go, well, why didn't you? And suddenly you're on the back foot. You're having to explain actually all the benefits of service life and what I learned as a junior leader within the military and all of those experiences and the responsibilities you had. But actually translating those to the corporate environment, it's often not well understood, the qualities of the training that you get in the military. And certainly that's much better today. But I think when I was sort of transitioning 20 years ago, it was difficult. And we find that today with our wounded, injured and sick, how difficult it is to transition out of the military, particularly when you've done a long career, into civilian street and understand the dynamics of what is required of you in the civilian workforce rather than the military workforce. It's interesting just to hear you relay the story. I keep thinking about how we define ourselves, how we see ourselves, and how society sees us. Here you are, nine years in the service. You're leading, you're leading other people. There's a level of confidence that you had to have in being able to do that. You leave the service and kind of that identity, and now you're doing something different. And like you said, you know, you're kind of caught in the back of your feet a little bit. So, I mean, what are some suggestions you have for people? There's a lot of people who listen to the podcast you know, who are at different stages of their lives and their careers, they're looking for kind of that hope, that confidence. You know, what's something you learned in your experience that people could take away so that they can get that footing, that they can get that confidence? Do you know what? Lifelong learning. I went and did my MBA as a young parent starting a new business, and it was a part-time MBA from LMU in London. That was a long slog to get through that three years whilst having a young family and also starting a new business. It's about lifelong learning and it's about searching for knowledge. And definitely the qualification gave me the confidence back to the person that I knew I was. But it's sad that labels are important. But when you're looking at an interview, you know, you've got 30 seconds, you've got three minutes, you've got 30 minutes to make an impression. And people are making judgment calls on you that aren't necessarily who you are, but how you're presenting or how you presented yourself on paper. So for me, I think it's that continuous learning and wanting to learn and understand the dynamics of what you're trying to achieve. But you know, for me also, I think setting a goal, having those goals that are there at six months, at 12 months and at five years has been a really nice leveler because you're always pointing forward. That has been sort of an anchor point for me going forward, being able to go, yep, that's where I'm heading to. At the end of the day, you know, here I am at the top of my very small tree, but it's been a really interesting journey trying to get there. Had you ever thought you'd be where you are today? Had you aspired to be the CEO of either a nonprofit or a for-profit corporation? How did your life kind of lead you in this path? Probably entrepreneurial by nature. So I think... After a couple of roles in the commercial sector, working for a direct sales company and then working for a project management recruitment business, I knew actually I wanted to be my own boss. And therefore, I started a business because that ticked the boxes for me then. And actually, it still ticks the boxes because I'm still my own boss, because I am the chief executive leading people. And you made a point earlier when we were chatting before the recording, talking about people first. And it's fascinating how important that is to me now. And we've got 85 staff members. And 
actually everything I do day to day now is about people. We are a people business delivering care to people and those people are veterans. But it is fascinating how as you grow through the different levels of your roles that you take on, how you get exposed to wider influences. And certainly one of the new influences, now I'm leading this team, is people first. It's about the culture. It's about how to inspire people and take them on a journey. Why is that important? And before you answer that, I know there are different points of view about leadership, right? So people first is certainly one that we at Dale Carnegie aspire to. And I remember giving a talk one time and talking about people first, and someone said, yeah, but there's other ways to lead. Why is people first an important part of what you do? And define what you mean by people first. So I guess that comes out of your character. And clearly there are three or four different types of leadership, you know, the very it's about you and it's about your vision and you drive it hard. And I am not that person in any way, shape or form. I'm a people person. I believe in relationships. I believe in team. I believe in empowering people. I don't want to do their jobs. I want them to be as good as they possibly can. So that I think is my cultural frame set. Try to build consensus. I try to influence. I don't think there's ever a way to do it. It's about a team dynamic to say, all right, fine, let's have a look at the problem. Let's do the appreciation and understand the best way to achieve it. And also give people the opportunity to deliver the journey. It's not my job to deliver the journey. It's my job to set a strategic direction and to enable them to deliver. People is everything for me. And you know, we've got nearly 100 people under the umbrella. And that comes with all the good and the bad because managing people is tough sometimes. It's easy when you've got people who are talented and they do the things you want them to do. Not so much when you've got people who've got different points of view. What is your secret, so to speak, for managing different personalities and different people at different levels without, as you said, you don't want to micromanage? What's your insight into how to do that effectively? I, I think humility is important. It's not my way or the highway. It's about listening to other people's points of view and being able to pull that together to build a consensus. And if that consensus isn't there, then leadership needs to come in a, a bit stronger and say, well, actually, I'm going to decide that we're going left. But I don't know. I have an idea, but I don't know the detail of one of my care coordinators challenges on a day to day basis. But I need to hear their reality because their reality will inform my decision. And if I can't hear that, then I'm not going to make a good decision for them and for the organization. And because we're about delivering stuff on the ground, it's their reality and their roadblocks and their problems that I need to take away to make them more efficient. So if I'm not listening to their point of view and how they view the world and the problems that they're bringing to me, then I won't know about it and I'll make bad decisions. So it is definitely about understanding and listening to people's experience yeah. and how to make it better. Yeah, it's interesting, Fergus, because as I think about this podcast and the couple of years I've been doing this and the leaders I've spoken with, 
Humility is one of those things that comes up a lot. It might not necessarily be something people would expect. You know, you think about leadership and strength and go in and tell people what to do, but that's really not what it is, right? I mean, so often it's the people with whom we work, they know exactly what we need to do. They've got the insight. They're in the front line and how foolish for us as leaders to think that we know better. Well, I don't want to pay myself to do their jobs. Absolutely, their jobs. They're the experts. They're the USP on the ground. But if I can add value to their journey by smoothing it, making it more efficient, making it more productive, and training them to be better at their job, that's what it's all about. So you were employee number one with Walking with the Wounded. You've served now 15,000 plus service members over the last 10 years. So the organization has grown from you to now 85 plus people your national organization. What are some of the other traits? You've talked about people first. What are some of the other leadership traits that have been important as you have worked with the organization to grow Walking with the Wounded? So I think that the single best statement that we came out with very early on was client first. And it still defines us today which is you can make many, many decisions about supporting a veteran. We support some really quite vulnerable people. It's not about the solution. It's as long as that solution benefits the client. And that might not benefit the organization or the brand. So we're not one that delivers to the brand first. We deliver to the client first. And that has served us really, really well. And it is still a very core value that sits within this organization. And it's something I talk about regularly with the staff, because clearly, as the organization grows, new people come in. And it's that culture that we have that I think is the winning formula. And it's underpinned by the values. And we've got to live and breathe those values. And we've got to educate the new people coming in to those values. And I think that has served us well. Client First has really served us well as a starting point of that journey of how I envisage this organization moving forward. And yes, you know what? 15,000 veterans in 10, 11 years. And remembering in those first two, three, four years, it was 100, 200 veterans that we were supporting. And the real tragedy is you know, last year we supported 3,008 veterans, but somewhere in the mix, every week, every two weeks, we do deal with suicides and attempted suicides. So that's how vulnerable our clients are, and therefore how important it is that we look after the resilience of our staff, because they're the frontline staff having to deal with some quite heavy lifting. So it's heavy lifting in terms of the mission, in terms of the vulnerability of the people, it was also heavy lifting during COVID. Your organization was one very deeply involved with working with people face-to-face and really having that empathetic connection to the people you serve. And then with COVID, and we were talking about March 2020, everything went remote in the UK. Number one, how did you encourage your team? How did you strengthen your team to be resilient during those adverse times? And how did the organization adapt? What did you do and what did you learn? I suspect it was one of the most challenging aspects of my leadership career, those four or five months of COVID when we really didn't know what 
was round the corner. We didn't know whether vaccines were coming. We didn't know whether they were coming out of this. And frankly, we are a fundraising entity. We raise money and we spend that money on our veterans. And we had to cancel 1.2, 1.3 million pounds worth of events. Just drew a line through it going, we have no idea whether we're going to survive. And this was all coming down the track in March, second week in March, sitting there going, oh, my Lord, what have we got? I'm not sure that we've got anything. Our USP prior to this was absolutely face-to-face. It was getting inside veterans' homes, understanding their needs, and then delivering to them. And we couldn't do that. And so we did suck our gums and try to work out how we were going to be able to survive. And it was a question of survival. And as a management team, we were all flapping and clearly we'd all been sent home. We were all remote and we weren't used to any of this. I chatted to our chairman and I was articulating the specific problems that we were facing about fundraising going, income disappearing, cost base staying the same. And then the chancellor here in the UK announced the furlough scheme which was to say, all right, stay at home and we'll pay 80% of your salary. And frankly, that looked quite attractive. It was, all right, we can all go home and just not relax, but just we're not going to go under. My chairman turned around and said, yeah, yeah, but what about the veterans? And it took us back to client first. The veterans that we are serving today and that we should be serving tomorrow, they're going to be in more crisis, more stress, more vulnerable than they were yesterday because of COVID. And we looked at each other and said, we can't. We must be focused on our core values, client first. So we drew a line through furlough and said, no, come what may, we've got to keep focused on our clients. And so we re-evaluated our proposition. Clearly, it was an online proposition. And we set off to be part of the national solution, albeit just supporting our cohort of veterans. But effectively, we told everybody, get on the telephone, 100 calls a day, go and speak to our veterans and just say, it'll be fine. You know, it's a tough time, but it will be fine. And we were making something like 10,000 calls a week. That enabled us to just put a purpose in this really confusing in certain times. And then we waited to see how the environment would shift. And clearly, we had to wait 18 months. But at the same time, we were testing the ability to deliver care over the internet online, and how good that was. And we've now learned from that experience. And now we mix and match and where it's appropriate, we will do it online. And where it's not appropriate, we will have to do it face to face. But we learned as an organization how to do it. And for us, that uncertainty, it was a terrible time. But it was really when leadership needed to come forth. I didn't miss a day in the office. It was really nice. I had this whole office to myself. And it's an office, rural Norfolk. And it was just me running the ship. I couldn't work from home because I'm not very good at working from home. So I plodded in. And it's the actions of the leader that set the tone for everybody else. And yeah, do you know what? I was up at six and I was leaving the office at eight. But we fought through that very uncertain term. And we came out much, much stronger than we went in.
It's ironic, isn't it? I mean, because I think if we go back to those moments, those moments were terrifying in many ways. I mean, you looked at your organization, you said, geez, I mean, your organization could have gone in different directions. Not being here is a place that could have happened to that organization if your leadership and the leadership of the organization had been different. I think we're going to look back at those days of COVID as really defining days. And so being agile, being resilient, you pivoted and the organization is stronger today. And it sounds like you're reaching far more people today than you were even before COVID. Yep. I mean, to be fair, it's easier online, but actually the quality of the impact that you're having on that individual's life is less. And that is our experience that actually face-to-face still works. So for the most vulnerable, we must still engage with them because it's about buying their loyalty. It's buying their trust to be able to then deliver the solutions or the support to uh, make their lives better. You know what you need to do. You do it extremely well. As Dale Carnegie, by the way, we've been honored to be a part of your mission. We've worked together. A London team I know has worked with you. What impact would you say Dale Carnegie has had in any of this in your leadership or your thinking or how you engage your clients? You guys approached us probably in 2019. You know, I was talking about that journey of people and understanding culture, understanding we're a people business. That's the engine room of the organization. And then how to develop talent, how to get the best out of people. And so when you guys came along and offered some support on leadership training and how to influence people and how to bring out the best of our people, it was lovely. And I was talking to you earlier, we had a trainer called Gene who gave us our first insight into the way you do your business. Dale Carnegie does his business in the Golden Book. And we now have a phrase in this organization, which is be more Jean, because Jean was such an inspiration. I can't even remember what she was telling us, but everybody understands be more Jean is, come on, drop the barriers. Let's get on with this collaboratively together as a team. You must ring her up after this and tell her that we still talk about her. Yeah, I'll send her a note. It's quite a compliment. She's really a terrific trainer. She has had impact on uh, so many people, and it's great to hear she's done you. And also just the timing of that training sounds like it was really important because you know, talk about getting people to work together is right before 2020 and so forth. You've innovated and applied that. I'm excited because I have the opportunity to raise some money for Walking with the Wounded. As you know, I'm going to be coming to London in October to run the marathon. Very much looking forward to meeting you. Really kind of you. And it's just so nice to get this kind of support from our corporate partners. It's a good time thing. London Marathon is quite an event. And I can't quite remember how many people run, but it's 30,000. What do we think the time? What sort of time are you looking at? I'm hedging a little bit because I used to be much faster than I am today. I'd say if I can run it in under four hours, that would be good. Running marathons has been a journey into understanding myself a little bit too, because I've got to learn persistence and also understand when to back off. And I've had some injuries over the years and so forth. And I'm 54 now. I'm excited just to be running it. And again, walking with the wounded is such a phenomenal cause. This is my shameless plug for anyone who's listening to the podcast who wants to donate. We'll have a link that you can go to to do that. I've got a fundraising page. But certainly, it's an organization that's having impact. And you talk about vulnerable people and people who are thinking about potentially suicide. People are transitioning in their careers and so forth. You're doing great work. 
What fuels you and excites you as you think about the future for yourself and for the organization? We've set out strategic plans to have an integrated regional service in every region of the UK. We've got three out of the seven or eight regions that we need to do. And we are just persistently plugging away at having that regional service. We do four things. We do employability for veterans. We do care coordination. We deliver rapid mental health and we deliver volunteering. And really that is a holistic package for a veteran who comes into the system, comes into our services and builds resilience so they can re-enter society as a confident member of that society because we believe that those who serve deserve. And so whether it's a mental disorder or a physical or even a social injury, it doesn't really matter. For us, it's about you served we want to get you back on our feet. And so for me, it's that growth of our integrated regional services, supporting our partnerships with the NHS and ensuring that actually veterans don't go without. And when I say go without, you know, I'm not trying to prioritize them. I absolutely want to champion them. But really, these veterans, they put their hand up. They've said, I'm going to serve my nation. And we've asked them as a democracy to put them in harm's way. And if they're coming back with physical or mental injuries, there is an onus on society to support that. And really, that's where I come from. It's just not fair if you have been injured mentally, physically, socially in the service of your country. Well, it definitely goes for firefighters and policemen and nurses, particularly during COVID and the trauma that they will have been through. I think it is an onus on society to support those individuals who have been supporting us when we need it. Absolutely. These are people who have given themselves to others. And in gratitude, we should be looking to take care of those people who've done that for us. I'm curious, Fergus, about you. What do you do when you are not working? How do you keep yourself mentally and physically healthy? So talking about your marathon, I don't run. I can't run. I won't run. I'm too flat-footed to run, but I bicycle. Actually, last year, we entered in a challenge called The Longest Day, and The Longest Day was effectively go and do your personal best at whatever it is, you know, whether it's bouncing a ball on a cricket bat or, you know, playing tennis for a long time or what have you. And for me, it was cycling. And somebody came up with an idiotic idea of bicycling from Manchester to London. No, Manchester to Norfolk. It's 201 miles. And my previous sort of personal best on a bicycle was 117. So I thought, you know what, it's fine because it's the longest day. It's do your personal best. So I thought I'll do 120 miles and I'll get off and I'll jump in the car and I'll go home going, I've completed it. And I started fundraising going, look, guys, I'm doing this, you know, give us your pennies. And that worked really well. But the problem was two or three guys said, oh, no, don't worry, I'll come with you. And they've never done 200 miles either. And I was going, oh, no, please don't come because I can't get in the car at 120 miles. And sure enough, we set off at four o'clock in the morning from Manchester and hightailed it over the Dales. At one point, we left the road and went up a goat track over the moors. And we were about three miles sort of pushing our bikes over the moors. And the guy that organized it, he watched me fall off my bicycle 
and going, oh, my Lord, the chief executive is falling off bicycle. I'm going to get <laughs> sacked. And thankfully, I was laughing when I went down. He was a little bit relieved. Anyway, at the end of the day, we got there. It was 19 hours, which wasn't particularly quick. It was a long time in the saddle. I managed to do eight radio interviews in that 19 hours, thankfully static rather than bicycling. It was quite revealing to me. I'd never done that distance. I had no idea whether I could. And actually, when we get to this age of 50, you know, your resilience is there. You just got to find it. And I went to places that I'd never been to. And that's physically and mentally rather than geographically. So that's what I do to keep myself amused. That sounds like quite the experience. You know, we talk about getting out of our comfort zones and really just throwing down a challenge. It's interesting, you know, when you were asking about the London Marathon, I was not going to do it either. I didn't feel like I was prepared. I had enough time and I've been dealing with injuries and just basically said, you know what, I'm going to put a stake in the ground and sign up for it. And it really drives the training. You know, I mean, you find yourself doing things you otherwise wouldn't be doing because you've committed to it. That's a good lesson for all of us in terms of, you know, we're capable of so much more than we believe that we're capable of. Our competence exceeds our confidence, so to speak. So it's inspiring to hear what you did, and you did it for a good cause, too. You know, it's really nice, but I guess I learned that in the military, because they ask you to do stuff that you don't really believe you can do until you've done it, and then your confidence grows and you hit the next barrier. How do you define failure, and how do you encourage people not to be afraid of failure? I talk about this client first piece. There are several different solutions to the problem that you're presenting me with. And I don't want to tell you what they are, because you know what they are. But as long as the pathway that you take is the best or is beneficial to the client, then that's a really good thing. And that is the framework that you need to operate in when presented with issues and you want to make a solution. Failure is quite a punchy word, but I do think resilience is important. And it's also how failure is viewed within an organization and having honest conversations. We could discuss something that didn't go well, but how do you ensure that there are learnings from all of this rather than damaging morale, criticism, and those elements? They are negative elements, but it is about what you can learn. That's why I say, if you get something wrong, it's absolutely fine. Analyze it. Make sure you do know why it went wrong. And so you don't repeat again. When I was younger, my view of failure was if I set out to do something that doesn't work, that's a failure. And that's a narrow negative view of failure. The reality is that, you know, life is a journey. And as long as we are, as you said, Fergus, you know, we're learning and we're improving and we're getting better, we're taking something away from it. All of a sudden, that's empowering. It's a constant journey. Leaders grow. They're not made. You've got to understand and learn from everything you do. And if there's learning from failure, well, that's a good thing. Well, great advice. Any uh, final pieces of advice for our audience, Fergus? I'm really enjoying this culture piece and how to shape the culture of our organization because we're a people business. But I think the bit that I need to help me do all the aspects of leading this business is reading. Whether it be around leadership, it's keeping myself aware because in every article I read is a nugget of something that I can take home, percolate and go, well, do you know what? I can do stuff 
in my organization, we talked very briefly about how we went into COVID. I'm happy to admit that actually there were elements of a rather Luddite management system where people were monitored by their timeliness and how high they strike their keyboard. And actually, everybody went home. And I was frightened to death of daytime TV. That's why I can't possibly work from home. And actually trying still to motivate and influence and get value out of people that are no longer in touching space. You can't see them. And for us as leaders, that took a bit of a shift. But I read around OKRs, objectives and key returns, and understanding how to manage people remotely. It's basic stuff. It's about setting them a goal and then being able to track that goal and not worrying about all the ancillary stuff. And now we do it naturally. And for me, that was one of those nuggets that I took away and thought, how are we going to manage our people better in this new environment? And now we're pretty much all remote. People are in the office one, two days a week. And I have no concerns about productivity and about how well they're engaged, how informed they are, because everybody is being managed with the same system of objectives and key returns. Well, it goes back to what you were saying, even originally about leadership. You have a clear vision for people. People are committed to the mission of your business. You don't want to micromanage people. And when you set clear expectations and goals and targets and you manage around those, you can just let them go. They'll hit the target however they need to hit the target. You can support them and make sure that you're there for them. And at the end of the day, it goes back to people first and empowering people. So Fergus, thank you so much. It's been a phenomenal talking with you. Really appreciate you and the great work that you're doing. Well, Joe, thank you very much for the invite today. And I'm much looking forward to welcoming you to the UK and to the marathon start list in October. In today's thought leadership segment, our guest talks about how Dale Carnegie's principles and teachings led him to make an important life-changing decision and to act quickly while maintaining a positive attitude and mindset. Like Fergus Williams, our guest reminds us that we must take ownership of our decisions and be fully accountable for their consequences. Please welcome the General Manager of Dale Carnegie London and Southeast UK, Pete Burbridge. Back in 2006, I was a fresh new graduate straight out of university looking for that first step on my career ladder. And it was advertising that I had chosen to deploy my resources and that was the field that I wanted to build my career in. Now, I was going up to London from Hampshire, which is on the south coast, on a regular basis for interviews. And I'd had a number of interviews already, and I'd been invited back for second interviews and third interviews. And in some cases, I'd even been offered a job. And yet, it wasn't clicking. Something there just didn't feel right. On this particular occasion, I'm sat on a train and I'm heading back home after a particularly successful interview with an advertising agency and it had gone as well as it possibly could have done. The people that I'd been interviewed by really understood me and I understood them. We had great rapport. There was good banter going back and forth and it really was a very pleasant environment to work within. And yet, as I sat there on the train, something didn't feel right. I was feeling despondent, dejected, and somewhat demotivated, and I just couldn't understand why. 
I noticed there was a magazine on the table, so I picked it up and I started flicking through. And I remember reading this story about a woman who was in her 60s and her children had grown up and left the house and she was divorced and she'd been made redundant recently and she decided to pack her bags and go and become a foreign language teacher in a far-off country. And I started to think to myself, well, if she can do it, why can't I? And as I was going down this train of thought, all of a sudden the train came to a sudden stop. And as I looked out the window, there was a sign for an insurance company that said, if not now, when? I went straight home. I went onto the computer and by nine o'clock that night, I had signed up for a teaching foreign language training program. I had booked tickets to go to Thailand and I'd found a school that were prepared to employ me on completion of my program. I'd made my decision and I was on my way. In the previous interview, Fergus talks about the importance of owning the consequences of your decision, both good and bad, but it has to be your decision. Now, I've lived with the outcome of that decision every day since, and it's one that I have an enormous amount of pride in because it has served me so well. Dale Carnegie says that once you've made a careful decision based on facts, go into action. Don't stop to reconsider. Don't begin to hesitate, worry or retrace your steps. Don't lose yourself in self-doubt. Don't keep looking back over your shoulder. And that's exactly what I've done. That decision changed the trajectory of my life and it's one that's been for the better. I'm also participating in the London Marathon on October 2nd to raise funds for Walking with the Wounded. If you'd like to support our cause, you can find the link to my fundraiser and more about the event in the episode summary. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.